It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. This is Brian Kilmeade Show, and a happy Father's Day should it apply. We have a busy hour coming your way. Uh, we're going to be taking... Uh, we're going to be taking your emails from over the weekend, and you can always email me, uh, BrianKilme.com. So many of you going back to work, you no longer can call. I totally get it. Uh, meanwhile, this is going to be a huge week in the Senate. They're going to be voting on some things the House had passed a while ago. They actually have to get back to work and see if they can work together as the president is back. But the vice president is back, been back for two weeks. What is she doing? Uh, to me, she's, uh, she's got to be the biggest Democratic disappointment in quite some time, and there's been a lot. Uh, Al Gore on down. But she has been totally inept and ineffective, especially when you look at what's happening at the border. Do you see what's going on? I got these numbers. Do you know we spend $2 billion on illegal immigrant kids? $2 billion. Don't you think our kids deserve that $2 billion from, I don't know, our money? Number two, fentanyl. 8,000 pounds of fentanyl caught this week, excuse me, this year. Can you imagine what we didn't get? Drug smugglers know how to be, avoid getting caught. That's what's infecting our country. We have shut down the northern border, but we have no interest in shutting down the southern border, which is nuts. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Some of the mayors in these cities are failing miserable. Lori Lightfoot talks about what's dangerous. The cops are dangerous. No, she's dangerous. We can talk about the failed leadership, but where's the support for the men and women? This anti-police rhetoric, it is not a surprise that police officers are leaving in large numbers. Yeah, the number of police officers killed by gunfire, stabbed to death, or rammed by vehicles that reportedly increased 40% through the first six months of 2021. Compared to last year, as violent crime spikes across the nation, anti-crime sentiment is going everywhere. Is this really the time to do police reform? Number two. People who then criticize me about that are actually criticizing science. Fauci misled us. First he said no mask, then he said mask. Well, let me give you a flash. That's the way science works. You work with the data you have at the time. Ooh, Mr. Mr. Congeniality getting a little aggravated. The Fauci follies continues as he pretends critics don't bother him. They do, and they should. Meanwhile, Biden's team lays out their willingness to pursue the true origin of the virus. I am not encouraged. Number one. I think we're absolutely committed to it, and I think there's a number of others as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, last week, I heard from a lot of my colleagues saying, I just need to look at one other issue. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in having a bipartisan proposal. Yep, voting and building. That's what the Senate will be doing this week. Two radical bills, if passed, would radically change America. Is Joe Manchin really our only hope? Not really. I'll explain the bills and the stakes. So uh, I, have, I really love uh, three and two, but I'll start with one because that's the order I picked this morning. I'm kind of feeling differently a little bit now. But uh, this week, starting on Tuesday, Congress gets back to work, the Senate in particular, and they're going to have this H.R. 1, which is a uh, a radical proposal, even on paper. Uh, there's many people on the left who are not going to go along with it. I hear Senator King, Senator Tester, Senator Sinema, Senator Manchin, all Democrats. That's off the top of my head who aren't going to go along with it. Also, Janine Shaheen of New Hampshire doesn't go for it. I mean, come on. 
They're, they're looking at this bill that's going to give every candidate money for financing. They're going to say uh, you can vote anytime, anywhere, voter ID not needed. H.R. 1 is DOA. And since there's no money involved, you can't use reconciliation. Since the filibuster's not moving because Cinema and Manchin won't let it, and they're smart, just like the Republicans were smart not to remove it during the Trump years. And I said that, even though many of you here, including Donald Trump, said, move it, let's get stuff done. They just want to be obstacles. No, win people over. That's what Joe Manchin's trying to do. But Joe Manchin has to have some buy-in from Republicans or he's got no cover. I thoroughly believe that. you got to have some buy-in, and they did. With this infrastructure uh, compromise. They repurposed money not being used for the pandemic that was set aside. They put 500 to $600 billion. Remember, $800 billion was the stimulus package after the economy crashed in 2008. So this will add up to about over a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars for infrastructure. That is a compromise package. Then all of a sudden it comes to light that Republican Democrats might go along with this because they're just going to sneak in another $4.6 trillion package that includes all the things that is not infrastructure and pass it on simple reconciliation. So they get the buy-in bipartisan credit, and then they get all the other crap, the green stuff, the social engineering things, the redistribution of wealth, the raising of taxes. So Republicans have to wonder, I'm trying to negotiate honestly, Portman's saying, Mitt Romney's saying, Lindsey Graham is saying, and then on the other hand, you got to go hit me and slap me across the face and say, aha, now here's your social engineering things, your socialistic principles. So let's start with infrastructure. So uh, who's going to buy in? Let's look at Senator Portman and what he said yesterday is all the work they're doing that has 11 Republicans and 12 Democrats. Is it going to be worth it? Is it real? Cut eight. It's not about infrastructure. It's kind of a, a $6 trillion grab bag of progressive priorities. Ours is about core infrastructure, and it is paid for. And so it's paid for without raising taxes, which is key. And I do think we have agreement on that. And I do think there's some very creative ways to pay for infrastructure that wouldn't be available for other expenses. Yeah, and Rob Portman used to be OMB director under President Trump. Remember, he knows the numbers. He's retiring. He wants to get something done. One of the reasons he's leaving is because he can't see a way to get things done. Cut 10. I think we're absolutely committed to it, and I think there's a number of others as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Last week, I heard from a lot of my colleagues saying, I just need to look at one other issue. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in having a bipartisan proposal. And Chuck... This is uh, growing the vote from the middle out. So yes. I, I think, unfortunately, that's where we are right now in Congress, is that it's, it's, it's more likely we'll have success in doing that. You recall at the end of last year, we did the same thing with regard to a COVID-19 package, which helped to get right. that final package done at the end of the year after really almost a year of, of no activity on something that was well, really necessary. This is the same thing. Right. Everybody wants to do infrastructure. President Trump had a $2 trillion package that he was proposing. President Biden proposed one in his campaign. And by the way, this helps President Biden keep that pledge of having an infrastructure package, but also to keep his pledge of doing things across the aisle and getting something done. Yeah, but if you just take the other stuff and you put it into another bill and jam it down our throats. And by the way, no one even on every Sunday show, nobody brought up inflation. What's going on with the car? The dollar, the thing that we have in our pocket, what we have in our accounts, what we have invested is now worth less. And they made it clear that's why the market dropped so precipitously on Thursday, I think Friday too. 
when it became clear that uh, inflation was not going away anytime soon and a, a rate raise was coming next year. Bad combination. That's why Bernie Sanders continues to spout craziness and is allowed to. He's not even happy with the trillion, which you could argue we shouldn't be spending now because the economy is recovering. You would think states might have the revenue to do it themselves. Cut to. The amount of money that they are proposing is about one quarter of what the president talked about in terms of new money. That's not adequate. And what we should be also watching carefully is how it is paid for. What the president has said quite correctly is he doesn't want to raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. I agree. In this proposal, which their bipartisan proposal like ours is still in flux, they're talking, some people at least are talking about raising the gas tax or mm-hmm. a fee on electric cars or maybe privatization of infrastructure. Those, to my mind, are bad ideas. Well, you got to negotiate it. I like the idea of an infrastructure private, public-private bank to be able to go to, be able to take loans at low interest rates. Government backs it up so you feel secure about it. And then, of course, you have a percentage of the fees can go back to maybe paying this off. And with RS fees and tolls, which we know. We're living the life of, with fees and tolls. Uh, we're trying to do this responsibly. Going red, the, raising the corporate rate is only going to make us non-competitive with other countries. The corporate rate is other countries. Rich people not paying taxes is because they pay when they make. If they're not out there earning and they're just wealthy, you don't have a wealth tax. That's what people should understand. I'm not H&R Block here, but there's some logic and there's something really distasteful about villainizing, vilifying success. It drives me nuts. Uh, the other thing is about HR1, nationalizing elections, I'm not for it. Some of the ideas that have been brought forth, I'm fine with. You know, you want to have voter ID, but you want substitutes, whether it's a utility bill or other things, go ahead. You want to have a, a, a day off for Election Day. Okay, I'm not sure the economy benefits from that, but if you want a day off so you can vote at noon instead of five, go ahead, do it. But when you want to give everybody matching funds to run for office, when you want to stop uh, allowing governors and legislatures to district the way they want to district, when that's got to come down from Washington's computer model, that's a huge issue. Plus, when you just do it in what when you decide in Washington what South Dakota and Florida should do or Montana and California should do, that's not right. Do I think it's great in Oregon that they do all mail-in voting? Not really. In Arizona, the same thing. They do a lot more. Every state knows their people, knows their culture. They have a tradition. I don't want Stacey Abrams writing up my new traditions. Chris Christie, cut 12. Look, you know, this is for, for someone, a Republican like me, this is a state's rights issue. As having been a governor, I want to make the decisions about how the elections are run in my state. And the way they need to be run in New Jersey are very different than the way they need to be run in Wyoming for a whole bunch of reasons, both historical, cultural, um, and because of the population density and others. So the idea that any governor is going to look at this and go, hey, I got a great idea. Let's let Washington run our elections. What the hell could go wrong? It's it's to me it's a state's rights issue and Republicans will stand firm on that side of it and be okay. So look, you can't do that on reconciliation. The question is, will Joe Manchin break on this? And what they're trying to do is make the Texas rule, the Georgia rule, uh, the forty-seven different states and cities that have reformed their elections and say you're restricting, not reforming. What they're doing is is reining it in and finding out what they learned from the last election when it was the wild west of elections. You saw what happened in Nevada. No one's pleased. 
pleased? Whether you thought Trump won or not, nobody is pleased with what happened in Georgia. Nobody's pleased with what happened in Arizona. They, you know, believe it or not, Florida was fantastic. We don't really have any doubts about Ohio, but there were a lot of problems in Michigan. So they want to be able to rein this in. Legislatures are saying, what has gone wrong? Let's fix it. Let's update the voter rolls. 100,000 people were taken off the voter rolls in, in Georgia. Right away, the CNN headlines that the— uh, that uh, and I'll just paraphrase here that the Georgia Republican governor has gotten rid of a hundred thousand names. No, they got rid of them because people are not there. They didn't respond or they moved. That's what happens. They're trying to update their voter rolls. That doesn't mean they're restricting or don't like minorities. And I just hope you are not simple. You're not going to read that headline and say there the Republicans go again, because it's just not the case. But if you go ahead and keep saying it and make it an emergency and they're going, to, they're going to swing elections and they're cheating and Donald Trump and, this, and all of a sudden you go, I need to pass H.R. 1. So Lauren Baron uh, Lopez broke a few stories for Politico. She was one of the panelists, uh, I believe, on This Week with George Stephanopoulos on the chances of this voting bill going through cut 11. She did give them a bit of an excuse to say, oh, well, now this very uh, progressive um, this progressive leader in Georgia supports it, so now we don't have to. But McConnell was always going to rally his Republican uh, conference against Manchin's proposal. So barring a change of heart from 10 Republicans, barring Manchin changing his heart about the filibuster, this bill is going to fail, and it really has no future right now in the Senate. Absolutely, and it should not have a future. So a Manchin went to amend it. Republicans aren't buying in on infrastructure. I think it's pretty underhanded to go ahead and agree to a trillion and then see, then have get slapped in the face on 4.6, a party line vote 4.6 trillion. So that would bother me. They got to go negotiate that. I'm not sure if Manchin's been bought off or not. I hope not. one 408 7669 On the other side, Republicans have to show some flexibility. You can't leave Manchin out there to go to fight for Republicans when he is a Democrat. And it's not like we're asking Lindsey Graham to go fight for Republicans. You're asking a Democrat to fight for Republican interest, even though it's West Virginia, a red state, and you're technically voting uh, with that. They voted a Democrat in. They knew I was going to vote, or they thought they knew. So let's see. Uh, We'll uh, we'll be um, talking more about this. I also want to talk about uh, crime in America right now. Uh, I'm looking at some numbers here that better catch your attention. Also, police officers listen to this show. So do their families. It's a lot of retired people. Uh, Police reform is coming down. It's not the same place we were at a year ago when this started or a year and a half ago in George Floyd's death. People are looking at life with cops who have been emasculated and disempowered. And guess what? It's not going well. I'll hit you with the stats. And if you're going to get rid of no-knock warrants, you're going to get rid of uh, restraint holds, are uh, you going to decide that you can't chase down a suspect just because he wants to run away? There's going to be hell to pay because that suspect that's running away might be breaking into your house next. Don't move. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. 
While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Our profession is in a crisis right now. And when you talk about issues like bail reform, the courts are not using common sense. They're putting these violent, predatory criminals back in our communities. And so that's the common thread we see in all of our cities. The other big issue, some of the mayors in these cities are failing miserable. Let's look at Chicago. Lori Lightfoot talks about what's dangerous. The cops are dangerous. No, she's dangerous. What's happening is people who live in the most vulnerable communities in in Chicago, south and west Chicago, vulnerable communities, who speaks for them? Who's protecting them? They want effective policing. And lastly, well, we can talk about the failed leadership, uh, but where's the support for the men and women? This anti-police rhetoric. It is not a surprise that police officers are leaving in large numbers. Yep, and uh, that's exactly what's going on. James Craig, former Detroit police chief, I think he's thinking about running for governor or mayor. I hope he does. Uh, He just cares about people, and he came up through the ranks, and he's a great communicator, too. So he's talking about the frustration he feels uh, as somebody used to run Detroit. In Atlanta, homicides are up 58%, shootings up 40%. New York City up 13% in homicides, 64% in shootings. In Portland, I mentioned 533% rise in homicides, shootings up 126%. Uh, look at Los Angeles, up 22% uh, in homicides, 51% in just flat-out shootings. Philadelphia out of control, up 37%. 58 policemen have been killed in 2019. 59 were pronounced dead in circumstances considered homicides in 2018. 54 were killed intentionally in 2017. 72 were killed in 2016. In 2021, uh, 153 law enforcement personnel have been killed. Tell me, in what country is this okay? The front page of the New York Post today, let them loot. DAs drop charges against the hundreds in the 2020 New York riots. All you have to do is go on Google and just say, look, click on video, put in. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. New York City riots. Click on Google. You get the video. We could be I know it's not easy with the masks, but you could be arresting hundreds of people. They decided not to. Why? Because racial unrest, they'll back out. Maybe they feel as though minorities deserve it. I don't. I believe there's right and there's wrong, and a lot of those businesses are minority owned so they have never and we had a business owner on today and uh 
we, they asked, they say, I have surveillance camera. They say, listen, I got surveillance video uh, on the front and in the, on the inside. The police never asked for it. They claim they don't have enough information. They never asked for the information. Pure politics. Same reason why uh, Black Lives Matter gets a pass. And if you're a member of these other fringe groups on the right, you don't, uh, whether it's uh, Proud Boys or somebody else. Number two, Proud Boys aren't really wrecking cities. Uh, they're fighting, and we know what happened on January 6th, and the, there was members certainly there. But they don't get up, and they don't wreck cities, and they don't loot. You know who does? Antifa, who in the Washington Post today were painted as saints. I mean, they should have been embarrassed. How would he even publish that? When we come back, Bill White, CEO and chairman of the Buckhead City Committee, that wants to split off from the city of Atlanta because of the crime rate and just form their own police force. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Killings are up 50% from before COVID. Where is this coming from? Remember... In Georgia, we were open up before the rest of the country. So our nightclubs and our bars remain open. We had people traveling here from across the country to party in our city. We believe that getting at least 1,000 young people to work this summer will help, but there is still so much work to be done. And until we deal with the systemic issues of gun violence in this country, how easily young people People with mental illnesses can access guns in this country. Uh, That is a mayor doing the unthinkable, and that is blaming the opening of a state with the rise in crime. Please tell that to Florida, uh, Texas, Arizona, Mississippi, uh, that opened up just as quick as Georgia. And that is someone who just can't take responsibility for being a failed leader. Uh, that's Keisha Lance Bottoms. And was, uh, might have been the running mate of Joe Biden. We never know. Uh, joining us now is Bill White, CEO and chair of the Buckhead City Committee. And why would I bring up Bill when we're talking about Atlanta? Because, Bill, if you have your way as, uh, uh, as the Buckhead City Committee chair, you want to split off from the city of Atlanta. Why? That's right, Brian. How are you? First of all, thank you for having us on. Really appreciate it. And man, if there isn't a pro-law enforcement uh, person in the media uh, that's better than you, I don't know who that person is. Thanks for saying that. Thank you for your support of our police. So Mayor Bottoms will blame everything, uh, even the kitchen sink, right? She first said about six months ago that it was the rhetoric coming from President Trump that caused the crime. Now she says it's uh, COVID about uh, three months ago. Now she's blaming uh, Governor Kemp. The only person to blame for this is her lack of leadership. She's the chief law enforcement officer of Atlanta. We have uh, 80 police officers, Brian, in Zone 2, which is Buckhead. Our murders are up 133% since 2019. Shootings up 164%. One of our friends here just got shot while out on a uh, a Saturday jog. And so we feel that the people of Buckhead have been exploited way too long by the city of Atlanta, and we are going to form our own city. We have two bills in the Georgia legislature. People think this is not happening. I'm telling you right here, it's happening. We've raised the requisite amount of money. We need to get this done. We have the support of the Georgia legislature. And I know the governor is going to sign this. By the way, Brian, he is – uh, Governor Kemp put $5 million in the Georgia State Police 
on the streets in Atlanta because she won't do her job. And she's blaming everything from this to that. So it's a really sad state of affairs here. And we need leadership. We need to love our police. We need to let them do their job. That's all they want to do. We love the APD. Brian, these are some great, amazing police officer families. We've talked to them. I I read the resignation letters. Almost 300 of them have quit since when? Since last year. Since last year. 300 of them. And they won't report this. And we've gotten so many letters from them saying, hey, I've been on the job 20 years, 10 years. That's like 3,000 years of police experience down the toilet. We're going to hire them in the Buckhead City Police Department when we get set up, which will be about about two and a half years from, from today. Wow. So, Bill, you guys uh, definitely have lost the f- sense of, uh, of peace and serenity. You don't really feel safe in, in doing the normal things you would do. A lot of people are saying, okay, that's fine, but Atlanta has to let you go. Legislatively, bring us through the process now. Where do you need – who do you need to say yes? Who has to say yes? Yes, uh, Brian, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you saying that. That's a great question. And there are some uh, – the city of Atlanta's organized opposition is putting out a lot of misstatements and misinformation, as you can imagine. Uh, they don't want to lose you know, the 40 percent of their tax base going into the city. They could care less about our problems. They haven't even reached out to talk to us to see why we filed for divorce. You know, when you do that, right, it's final. But Atlanta actually has no say in this. The only authority that gives the people of Buckhead the right to vote their own destiny is the Georgia legislature. And I believe that their courage will put this on the ballot in November of 2022. Those two bills come up this coming session in the winter. And by April, we'll know whether this is on the ballot or not in November. So we hope that the Georgia legislature will keep the fight up with us and stay and fight with us because we've got to prevail. Our lives depend on it. It has become so bad here, Brian. Who's so beautiful in Buckhead. And it's, you don't even want to go out to get gas without putting a a gun in your pocket. That's what I do. Wow. Uh, So who decides what gets on the ballot? Uh Aha. See, you know how the sausage is made. Uh, You, you really do. This, This is the speaker of the Georgia assembly, a wonderful, a practicing attorney, David Ralston, he's a great conservative gentleman. He's very fair. He's been listening to us. He's listening to the other side. I believe he will come through for us. And then we have Jeff Duncan in the Senate. I believe, despite some other things that you know people may criticize him for, that he's going to come through for us. He's a good and decent man when it comes to protecting the lives of, of the families here. And so we have the Georgia senators and the Georgia assemblymen. But, you know, leadership controls that. You know that better than anybody. If you don't have the leaders, you're not getting this brought up. And they're letting it be brought up. So we have great faith in them. But aren't there more people in the city of Atlanta than Buckhead? And if they decide that they want that tax dollars or they don't want you to leave, you could get outvoted there? Uh, The only people that are going to vote in this referendum for Buckhead to be a city are the legally registered voters within the map that we've drawn for Buckhead City. A really? lot of folks down here, yeah, a lot of folks down here are spreading spreading that out that, hey, we're not going to let this happen because we vote. Uh, Atlanta's not voting. It's the 90,000 residents that live in Buckhead. And between you and me, you've been talking about election integrity. We, of course, are very worried that they'll try to play a fast one. So we're very attentive to who those legally registered voters within our map will be. 
But we'll be watching that. We're going to have about 800 poll watchers in our uh, in our election booths coming up. We're not going to let them do what they might have done last time. Understood. So uh, I know Buckhead's a, a beautiful town, suburbs, but it's suburb. You really represent a lot of suburbs in America. So you have the cities that are out of control with mayors that feel as though police are out of control, and the result is crime is out of control. When are people going to understand that these things are all related? Yes, you know, it's, it's an excellent point, Brian. And I don't mean to say that maybe this could be some, you know, uh, some light here at the end of the tunnel. It's just craziness, the policies, the lack of leadership, the lack of support of the police, the rise in crime. It's totally correlated. And a friend of mine who's a, who's a clinical psychologist said if you so – they, they're just telling us, Brian, why don't you just vote a new mayor? Maybe they'll change it, right? So Kasim Reed, who was under federal investigation – Felicia Moore, who's the current city council president, we're not going to get anything new with them. So we don't want to look like we're insane doing the same thing over and over again, you know, expecting a different result. So maybe if we can do it and do it right, maybe it could be an example to other places around the country where you take control of your own destiny back from the crazy people. So Bill White is the CEO and chair of the Buckhead City Committee, and they're looking to split off from the city of Atlanta because they cannot take the overwhelming crime and they feel as no one's been responsive uh, in the city. So, Bill, what do you say to people who think, well, here's a, a mostly white community who just wants to split off from a black community? Well, I I do appreciate that. It, it is a, a criticism that a lot of people are throwing out. But I have to say, I look at my makeup of my neighbors here where I live in the Paces section of Buckhead. I have talked to many multicultural families, multiracial. You know, I have a very easy way of saying this, that Buckhead is the most diverse community in all of Atlanta. The census is not correct here. It's about 25 to 35 percent non-white and every neighbor that I know is telling me, you know, go, 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 because they're getting attacked. Their cars are getting stolen. The rapper, uh, I hate to mention people who are, you know, African-American, but they support us. I was out the other night. I met Dallas Austin, who's one of the great uh, radio, you know, producers. Uh, we share a great mentor and Clive Davis, an old friend of ours from New York. And he told me, Bill, uh, I'm with you. You know, we got to get this fixed. I live in Buckhead. And I'm afraid to go out. So um, it's very hurtful when someone says, you know, Bill White, you're a racist. They, they don't know me. Brian, you've known me for many years yeah. uh, with our work with veterans and the intrepid. And it's very painful to hear that because that, that hurts my heart. It's not in my heart. And we just want to get safety. I don't know why they equate racism, you know, because we want our safety. It's just a, a go-to narrative that's unhelpful. And I don't think it'll solve, solve crime. When people say that, we got to get to the root of this and get this stuff fixed. I hear you. Uh, Bill, you take an action uh, as usual. When you have a problem, you address it and you lead it. Bill White, CEO you, and brother. chair of the Buckhead, Buckhead City Committee, will stay on top of this because I, I do hope you, you – this is one way. If, we're not, if the ballot box won't do it, this is another way to hold these, these, deci- these people making these ridiculous decisions accountable. Uh, we're leaving. Yes, if, you're gonna, if, yes, you're, if you're not going to watch our back, we're leaving. Uh, yes, Bill sir. White, Thank thanks you, so much. Appreciate it. Brian, thanks so much. You're you're amazing. I really appreciate it. God no, bless you. No problem. Keep it up, Bill. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We come back. I'll find out. Uh, actually, I want to expand, if I can, on what's happening at the border.
It didn't make the big three, but I could have had a big seven today. So what's happening at the border has got to be reined in. And the fact is, when Donald Trump had these issues in 2019, no one said he wasn't trying to fix it. You might not have liked what he was doing, he was trying to fix it. What I find most astounding and disturbing is this administration doesn't seem to want to fix it. And I will not let up. That is not okay. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. She can do the job. She just uh, uh, needs to get down to the border. You know, we've invited her. I hope she can come down. Uh, otherwise, she should have not been appointed uh, border czar by the by, uh, by the president. Uh, and that's the reality. So, yes, we want to help her. And, and But the only way we can help her is if she makes a visit down to the border, meets with sheriffs, uh, landowners, uh, mayors, judges, you know, the NGOs down here. Not a stage visit, yeah. but have a real sit down with the people that see this on a day to day basis. So we uh, yeah. we certainly invite her to come down. Uh, let's see when she'll come down. But we want to be helpful to the vice president and to the administration. Yeah. Congressman Henry Cuellar doing something very gutsy consistently. And I think I've mentioned this before. When I was uh, the first time I was at the border, I'm riding the vans. I'm talking to these uh Border Patrol, and I keep looking over, and I see a guy in a members-only jacket just kind of walking around with us. Everybody knew him, and he was just walking around. He's asking questions, and he knew I was pressed. I never met him face-to-face, and he introduced himself. He goes, uh, I'm uh, Henry Cuellar. This is my district. He was just mixing with the Border Patrol, not looking for any publicity. This is what he cares about. I mean, he, that's what he's hired to do, and he understands that. Other Democrats in Texas, too, and I imagine Arizona— Henry Cuellar just says, I don't care what you think of me. That's why they were thinking about primarying him last last term, but no one could get close. They just backed off. He's like, I just want it done. So right now, Republicans are now, House Republicans are now asking for answers. They want to know, is Joe Biden diverting funds from American Uh, from American programs, health and human services programs, in order to give it to illegal aliens to stay in hotel rooms. Right now, the number is $2 billion. $2 billion has been spent minimum on migrant kids. Let me ask you, don't your kids deserve that money? Have you seen what our cities look like? You see what's going on with law enforcement? You see what's going on with uh, how many uh, schools are just run down and the teachers aren't paid enough? You're going to tell me that uh, the teachers in Florida and in Chicago don't deserve more? You know, the ones that went back to work, the ones that are private and public school, those schools are so run down. If you get up the salaries, you get better quality. More from Quayar, Cut 32. <clears throat> No, I haven't. I've not heard from uh, her office. I have talked to the White House, my White House contacts, uh, but I've not heard from her. And again, we're ready to help her in any way. This is not our first rodeo. We saw this uh, 2014 under President Obama, 2019 under President Trump. Uh, And of course, we've seen it. And uh, the report you just gave from La Jolla, that's my district. And I certainly uh, understand what's happening there. Uh, there are people that are just coming in. And as long as if we don't take those incentives away, then they're just going to keep coming. I mean, that's plain and simple. 8,000 pounds of fentanyl has been seized at the border. Unbelievable amount of meth, even more. And that's what's been seized. Those are the people we got lucky enough to find. It's probably quadruple that because drug smugglers are great at their job, sadly. 
I want to talk about critical race theory if we can. What bothers me so much is when people look at a movement they don't understand and say, well, it's got to be publicly financed. This has got to be a Republican talking point, like uh, the Marriage Act during the Bush years. A lot of times they'll start in Washington and go, this is what I think the American people care about, and they'll start a movement. The whole critical race theory happened because of the pandemic, because people, parents were looking over their shoulder and find out what their kids were doing, overhearing Zoom calls, looking at their homework, and notice critical race theme, uh, theory being taught. So uh, it's not race. It's not history. You talk history. You talk about Jim Crow. You talk about Martin Luther King. You talk about the, what happened in the revolution. You talk about, uh, you, you talk about uh, the black codes. You talk about what happened in, in Oklahoma with Black Wall Street. Absolutely. But then talk about what happened after. Talk about what happened after, who went to bat for Jackie Robinson, why that needed to be done, why we broke the color barrier in sports and then in life and then in the military. That was part of the American story. But now it's apologize. Apologize for something you had nothing to do with. And Cornell Belcher, a Democratic pollster, a left-winger from MSNBC, can't understand what critical race theory is and why it's getting such hoopla around the country and why these Board of Education meetings have been so inflamed. He says he knows why. Cut 25. It's coordinated, it's aggressive, it's intentional, right? This is, this is part of the, the, the tribalism play. The critical race theory is, is yet another tool in the, in, the, in the racial tribal boogeyman's toolbox to drive and inflame tribalism, which Republicans think thinks helps them in, in, in elections. This is, this is, this is Trump 2.0. This is a, is, a, is a continuation of this, right? Critical race theory is, is an arcane sort of ideal. Why is it front and center right now? The same reason that Mitch McConnell attacked Stacey Abrams when she came out for the, for the, vote, for the voting bill. It is racial. It is tribalism. We've seen it grow under Trump, and this is part and partial of it, and they think this helps ignite their base. Yeah, I think he doesn't understand that Democrats are involved in this. This is about parents, not politics. Glenn Lowry, a professor at Brown, grew up in inner city Chicago, uh, ends up putting himself uh, through school, furniture sales. Now he ends up teaching as an esteemed professor at Brown University. Cut 28. I wouldn't ban it. I would argue against it. In other words, I would argue the glass of the uh, uh, American saga with respect to race is half full and more. I would say that If you looked at mid-20th century, uh, the typical occupation for an African-American woman was a domestic servant. This has changed dramatically within my lifetime. I would say that slavery was a fact of human culture everywhere. Emancipation, which happens here in the United States of America, en masse, is a uniquely American achievement. Not that uh, slaves were not emancipated elsewhere, but that the uh, implicit promise of the American project culminates for blacks in emancipation and in the... Uh, civil rights movement. So do you understand? We're not saying run from our past. We're saying understand it, uh, understand how bad it was, understand how much progress we made, and then work together to make our country better and better and better, and that's why people will do anything to get here. But don't vilify ourselves. We can't be our own worst enemy. We have enough enemies. We have to be this together on this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. 
Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, Brian Kilmeade Show will feature former New York City Police Commissioner Howard Safer in a matter of moments and Fire Commissioner, too. And we're also going to have uh, Sorab Amari with us. He's a New York Post op-ed editor and author of a brand new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos, which we're in the middle of. Also a special day for us. Every time we welcome, uh, we welcome another affiliate, and it's happening a lot now. We have uh, WPMO AM 1580, Talk Radio 1580, WPMO's Talk of Southern Mississippi. And by the way, the number we're going to use, having some problems with our normal number, so jot this down. I'll give you a second. One one thousand two one thousand three one thousand one eight 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 seven eight eight ninety nine ten one eight 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 seven eight eight ninety nine ten. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. Some of the mayors in these cities are failing miserable. Lori Lightfoot talks about what's dangerous. The cops are dangerous. No, she's dangerous. We can talk about the failed leadership, but where's the support for the men and women? This anti-police rhetoric, it is not a surprise that police officers are leaving in large numbers. Yep, number of police officers uh, killed by gunfire, stabbed to death, or rammed by vehicles has reportedly increased 40% throughout the country. First six months of 2021. Uh, Is it any wonder police are leaving the force? Number two. People who then criticize me about that are actually criticizing science. Fauci misled us. First he said no masks, then he said masks. Well, let me give you a flash. That's the way science works. You work with the data you have at the time. Right. And then you claim you have all the data and these are the things absolutes. You never admit when you're wrong. That's the Anthony Fauci mantra. And you can see he's getting it's getting under his skin a little. I'm glad. The most overrated American in the history of America. Fauci follies continue as he pretends critics don't bother him. They do and they should. Meanwhile, Biden's team lays out their willingness to pursue the true origin of the virus. I saw their plan. I am not encouraged. Number one. I think we're absolutely committed to it. And I think there's a number of others as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Last week, I heard from a lot of my colleagues saying, I just need to look at one other issue. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But uh, there's there's a lot of interest in having a bipartisan proposal. Yeah, Senator Ron Portman, one of the good guys, and sadly, he's leaving the Senate. He thinks they could have a deal. Voting and building, those are the two things to vote on. Infrastructure as well as H.R. 1. Joe Manchin holds the key for both. I think voting's D.O.A., but I'll tell you what the surprise is when it comes to infrastructure. There'll be another infrastructure plan that has nothing to do with infrastructure and be about $4 trillion that could be next. Any way to stop it, we should. So let's bring in Howard Safer, former police commissioner of New York from 96 to 2000. And he was uh, he's now CEO of Vigilant Resources International. Commissioner, welcome back. Good to be with you, Brian. First off, uh, Commissioner, was a, I'm going to give you some numbers you probably know already. Homicides up in Atlanta, 58%. New York City up 13% this year. Shootings up 64%. Portland, it's almost 600% rise. Uh, Los Angeles up 22%. Philadelphia up 37%. Shootings up 27%. The numbers are stunning. They're consistent across the board. Uh, what do you? Where is the hope? People want to see hope. Do you, do you see any hope of turning the corner here? I don't see it yet. What I do see is a long, hot summer coming along, and homicides and shootings are going to increase, and violence is going to be the mantra across our major cities because our leftist mayors have ceded the cities uh, to the loudest, nastiest voices of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So, you know the cover of the New York Post today? Let them loot. 
DAs dropped charges against hundreds in the 2020 New York riots. You came on our show. You were as horrified as anybody about what was happening in New York City, and the cops were powerless to stop it. There wasn't um, uh, enough. It was totally out of control. And now there'll be no hell to pay. We talked to some store owners, Commissioner. They're not even asking for their video. No, because what's happening now is we have sent a message to the people who would destroy businesses, primarily minority-owned businesses usually, uh, and saying, go ahead and do it. There's going to be absolutely no consequence. Uh, look what's happening on the West Coast where they're not going to uh, prosecute anybody who shoplifts under $1,000. I mean, this is chaos and anarchy, and we need to get it under control. This should be about refunding police, not defunding police. Look what happened in Portland. Fifty members of their riot squad all resigned because of the defunding process. Uh, this is out of, totally out of control, and what we're doing is we're getting rid of everything that works to reduce crime and make criminals fear the police. That's who should be fearing the police, not the public, the criminals. It's almost like China and Russia, our two chief, uh, and Iran, our three chief uh, uh, enemies around the world, are deciding what could, we, what could we do to make America start to fall apart. This is exactly what they would do. We're doing it to ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, we are definitely, if we keep this up, on the road to becoming a third world country. Uh, we are, with the woke movement, uh, somebody says one word and with no due process whatsoever, they get fired, they get vilified. Uh, this is outrageous. Uh, it breaks my heart because so many good police officers and police executives throughout the United States work night and day to make this country safe. And now we're going right back to the bad old days. So right now, if you're a police commissioner, you're really powerless because you, you serve at the pleasure of the mayor. And you, you're not supposed to be making your mayor look bad. So how do you truly believe in law and order and support any of these mayors? For example, this Keisha Lance Bottoms, the most overrated politician I've seen in, in maybe in my lifetime, uh, outside, well, no one ever rated Mayor de Blasio high. But this is, people think she's some up-and-coming star, which she is allowed. She does not allow her police officers to chase down a criminal if they run away. So everyone is resigning there. It's uh, places like Buckhead are trying to split off from the major city. Listen to who she blames or uh, who she blames for the rising crime. Cut 22. Killings are up 50 percent from before COVID. Where is this coming from? Remember, in Georgia, we were open up before the rest of the country. So our nightclubs and our bars remain open. We have people traveling here from across the country to party in our city. We believe that getting at least 1,000 young people to work this summer will help, but there is still so much do you, work do you, do you, do you believe, I can't even hear the whole soundbite. Because, because the governor opened up the city first, which about like a couple of days before the state of Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona. Are you kidding? She's a joke. I mean, the fact is everybody knows the main drivers for crime are guns and drugs. And when you pay no attention to drugs and no attention to guns, like what happened in New York with the uh, abolition of the gun plainclothes units, criminals don't leave their guns in their apartments or in their cars. They put them in their waistband and they go out and shoot people. And they know, they know there is no responsibility. We have really got to take back this country. And, you know, we have to stop listening to these loud voices. The vast majority of people in this country want more police, 
want law and order, but they have to start speaking out because people like that mayor are going to drive what's going on, and more and more people are going to be killed. Uh, I look at what's happening in New York. I look at the homeless encampments in Los Angeles. I look at the lack of enforcement in San Francisco and basically ceding Seattle and Portland to these criminals. That's not the America I want to live in. Commissioner Howard Safer, our guest. Commissioner, you now have a mayoral race where it looks like it's going to be run by a Democrat, so everyone's focused on these primaries. Eric Adams is out in front as a former uh, uh, police officer. He, uh, when he saw this, these kids being caught in the crossfire of a shooting in front of a convenience store, when one of his uh, hotel, when one of his campaign volunteers gets stabbed in the Bronx, he's taken strong action. Uh, in condemning it, put uh, his own money up to try to find the the uh, the shooters um, and the attackers. Are you encouraged that Eric Adams might understand that law and order's got to be first? I hope so. I, you know, I had my differences with Eric Adams when he was running a hundred black men who care when I was commissioner. But he is a cop. He does not have a enforce the law, and I'm hopeful that if he gets elected. He's going to go back to the kind of things that made New York the safest large city in America. You know, we have to stop thinking that stop and frisk is a dirty word. We have to stop thinking that assertive policing to get criminals off the street is the wrong thing to do. We can't be sending social workers uh, to violent encounters that are domestic violence because we're just going to have more bodies. Uh, People have to stop and take a breath and understand why this country had such a large reduction in crime and why it's changed now. And you know it's easier, Commissioner, when no one's in the city working. So you have other people there that live there, and they, you know, it's a, the city wasn't crowded. Now when the subways get filled up again, when the trains start getting filled up again, and they go to walk to Penn Station, and they're stepping over bodies that were never there before because the homeless have made it their home, they're going to realize this is what happened over the last year, this has got to change. Because you can't work here. That means you lose your tax base. A lot of people have moved out already. Uh, Commissioner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Brian. All right. Commissioner Howard Safer, keeping his eye, and we have our fingers crossed that if Eric Adams does win, uh, he's going to go back to the cop he was. Um, listen, I'm going to take your calls when we get back. We have a new number, one 888 You can write me at briankillme.com. And then you just go there and you just click on uh, comments and I'll be able to read them out loud. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis because, man, do you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I put very little weight in the adulation and very little weight in the craziness of condemning me. Things change, so it isn't a question of being wrong. It's a question of going with the data as you have and being humble enough and flexible enough to change with the data. What are you talking about? Anthony Fauci, this is what you do for a living. Do masks work or not? 
So you didn't know right away Taiwan was telling you, communicating with you, there's a virus coming, don't believe the Chinese. If you would come forward and say, we are not getting the facts from the Chinese, from the lab, from the region, from the government, I cannot stop this. The CDC cannot devise a a test for this unless we know exactly what it is. And then when it comes over and you told us the wrong thing, which was get ready for SARS-1 and it was SARS-2 and it's now uh, COVID-19, then you say we were ready for the wrong test. The CDC had the wrong test. We need to find out how this started. Then you go out and you say we're all in this together. Now, right now, I don't see a te- a, a uh, this virus, this mass are, are stopping or are helping right now. But Anthony Fauci has changed his story from we had to go with the data to I knew we didn't have enough masks. That's why I told you not to wear a mask. So one way or another, you're lying. Number one, you told John Casamitidis, as I said many times, this virus will not be a problem here. Man, that's interesting. So maybe you should have been angrier than anybody else in April when the whole country was shut down on your recommendation because of a virus you could not get an honest, you claim you could not get an honest handle on. Let's say I just take you at your word. So if you use that international credibility to speak out, there would have been the type of pressure on China to actually do something to stop the virus or to come clean on the virus. Or if it was not made in the lab, maybe it could be the, um, you know, the gain of function research that was so unpopular, maybe you're doing that to watch your own back. So that's what he said on the New York Times Sway podcast. I'm not buying any of it. You know I don't. Cut 15. It is essential as a scientist that you evolve your opinion and your recommendations based on the data as it evolves. And that's the reason why I say people who then criticize me about that are actually criticizing science. The people who are giving the ad hominems are saying, ah, Fauci misled us. First he said no mask, then he said mask. Well, let me give you a flash. That's the way science works. You work with the data you have at the time. I don't buy it. Uh, Flash, so for example, if you don't like my radio show, well, I have news for you. You just don't like talk radio. No, I don't like you. So... I could do that, and if I said, if you came up to me and said, I heard your radio show, I don't like it, and I said, well, you just don't like talk radio, that's a cop-out on my part. So not everyone's going to love you. Not everything decision you make is going to be right. That's your answer. You were wrong. That's your answer. You were not right. That's your answer. And in the past, you've been able to handle MERS and SARS the same way. This was different, maybe because scientists are telling us and even letting me understand that the way this was put together was something that probably came from a lab, that you tried to sideline anybody who said anything like that, just like hydroxychloroquine. Now there's a bunch of studies that it really diminishes the chance of dying or getting extreme uh, symptoms if you took it. But you were quick to say you're not a believer. So no one believed it, and if you tried to send that out, you got your account frozen. Even if you were the governor of Florida, if you had someone say that, they would actually take down the video. So do you understand people's frustration? It seemed your cahoots with all the elite media and all the social media to make sure your point got across. Now, why am I down about the fact that the, uh, the Biden government is, is determined to get to the bottom of this? Because they're still depending on the World Health Organization because they're depending on their 
intelligence apparatus who has no access to the lab. They've deleted information on the lab. They have not opened the doors to the lab. So what's going to change? Maybe if we do have that defector in the wings that is rumored to be defecting in the wings, maybe that's it. But Jake Sullivan let everybody know he's lying when he says he's gotten all our allies together. We're not on the same page. You read, and I disagree with Ian Bremmer, who was on with us Friday. He's like, we really made big gains in uniting against China. No, we didn't. Cut 16. We are not at this point going to issue threats or ultimatums. What we're going to do is continue to rally support in the international community. And if it turns out that China refuses to live up to its international obligations, we will have to consider our responses at that point, and we will do so in concert with allies and partners. Look, I think that Joe Biden will do a better job with our partners than Donald Trump did. He looked at us and said, uh, they're not going to go along with it. Why waste my time? I think that we should have done a little more of that. Joe Biden will be better at that, but not take his marching orders. Tell them what we're doing. Tell them how important it would be for to come. But I don't want you to water anything down like the uh, the communique that was written after the G7 and the NATO summit. Cut 17. He got the G7 to endorse a statement saying in unison that China must allow an investigation to proceed within its territory. And it is that diplomatic spade work rallying the nations of the world, imposing political and diplomatic pressure on China. Uh, that is a core part of the effort we are undertaking to ultimately face China with a stark choice. Either they will allow, uh, in a responsible way, investigators in to do the real work of figuring out where this came from, or they will face isolation in the international community. They don't care, and it's not going to happen. So many are intertwined with the manufacturing coming out of China. So many want to sell their BMWs to 3 billion people, and they want to sell their Mercedes and, and the wine. They want to use that market. They actually want China to build things in their country because in the case of France and Germany, they don't really work hard, especially France. So they come in there. Chinese workers come in. In Italy, you know what happened. So we have to push every single day. And make our markets much more attractive than their markets. Convince them that they pay a little bit more and make it in America or make it in Vietnam if you have to or the Philippines. Just don't make things in China. But please don't tell me that you have convinced Germany, France and all our allies to start isolating China. Not even close. They are scared to death. We'll ask them to do it. We asked them so they don't even have the answer published. When we come back, we're going to be on by Sorab Amari, New York Post op-ed editor and author of a brand new book, The Unbroken Thread. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I put very little weight in the adulation, and very little weight in the craziness of condemning me. Things change, so it isn't a question of being wrong. It's a question of going with the data as you have and being humble enough and flexible enough to change with the data. Okay, that's great. But the problem is you never acknowledge that you are wrong. You never acknowledge that things change. You got pushed by questions and interviews and podcasts instead of just declaring certain things to be yes or no. And it's amazing how compliant you came when Joe Biden became president and how obstinate you were subtly with Donald Trump. That's what bothers me. You had way too much power. You didn't use it in the right direction. So Habra Amari joins us now. 
He's a New York Post op-ed editor and author of a brand new book called The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in the Age of Chaos. Uh, Mr. Amari, congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. First off, on on Anthony Fauci, he's getting a little defensive. You think he's he's, he's under too much pressure? Is he getting too much condemnation? No, I mean I think that he's been such a uh, both a bad communicator and such an egomaniacal autocrat that he deserves all the credit, all the criticism that he gets after all the adulation that he. God, you know, including, you know, putting himself on the cover of style magazines and, uh, you know, just being uh, uh, portrayed in this laudatory way on every TV show and every sketch show and every late night comedy show and so forth. Um, That's the problem with treating one person as an icon for science with a capital S who was then used to, as you said, Brian, uh, attack the president, the sitting president who was technically his boss. Um, and then the decisions that he made, some of them turned out to be uh, massive overreach on, for example, the outdoor masking. Long after we knew there was no outdoor transmission, he insisted on masking, so on and so forth. So, no, I think he, he deserves the criticism that he gets. But also I think the problem is are the people who elevated him above all the media and kind of de- Democrats and their allies into this kind of totemic figure for science. When, of course, science is never set in stone like that. And it's never just the, the view of one man. And you set it up like that. Then when questions arise. Yeah, I think we might have just disconnected. If, uh, if it in fact, is the case, we'll get him right back in a second. Um, and that's so Robert Mari. So he's got it. And what I'm going to segue to now is his book, which is really interesting and, and perfect for right now. Because if you don't think this last year has been chaotic for everybody in this country and around the world, you have not been paying attention. Uh, so, Rob, we got most of your comments, um, but i like to transition from the chaos, and Anthony Fauci was a part of that. Is that what spurred this book that you wrote, or was it something you were working on already, the chaos over the last year and a half? Well, frankly, I started writing the book before the pandemic, and so it became more timely uh, afterward because then the pandemic hit. Um, but my anxiety, the chaos that I'm referring to is what I'm worried about, uh, which is I'm a father. I'm a relatively new fa- father. When I started writing the book, my son Max was two years old. He's now four years old. And so, yeah, in those past two years, he's basically gone through the pandemic, the riots, the political insanity and everything else. But I'm just worried about the kind of man our civilization will chisel out of him. You know, I'm an immigrant. I'm from, from Iran. I came to the United States, and I'm an incredibly grateful immigrant for, for all the opportunities this country has provided me. At the same time, all my gratitude doesn't allay the anxieties that I have about, the, as I said, the kind of man that uh, you know, my, our culture will chisel out of him. For people like in his class, upper-middle-class Americans, are formed to be incredibly selfish they just think that their rights are about their own self-maximizing, their own getting ahead in life, hookup culture, and so on, without any of the corresponding duties and sense of sacrifice that informed our rights and also the Judeo-Christian moral substrate that made it all work. Because our rights are wonderful, but if they're left alone, but they don't have this kind of undergirding moral foundation, then the, our rights can become monstrous. And that's, I think, what we're seeing today with 
you know, the rampant leftism on campus with uh, woke corporations and so forth. They're all using the language of rights and liberty and freedom, but in this distorted way that's disconnected from any sense of the pursuit of the good, from duty, duty to nation, duty to God, duty to family, and so forth. Well, the other thing is, if you could could teach him those things, he'll really stand out more than maybe previous generations, right? Even, uh, one, I hope that I individually will attempt to do that as a father, but I, what I would argue is that um, fathers and mothers need a kind of social support where it's not just you alone battling against a very degraded culture and Hollywood and ready availability of pornography. You know, kids now encounter it before hitting puberty. Nine out of ten kids, uh, boys, hit, watch hardcore porn before they're age 10, 11. That's a moral catastrophe. That's a five-alarm cultural fire. So absolutely, I mean, we parents should do everything we can. If, if you can homeschool, if you can send your kids to parochial school to shield them from the messages of the culture. But it would be nice if we could also, conservatives, people of tradition, people of faith, could also shape the culture again and not shy away from those. Because one way or another, some orthodoxy will be enshrined in our public square. Some worldview will be uh, held up as this is the consensus, this is the orthodoxy. And the, the retreat of Christianity, retreat of traditional religion from the public square hasn't left us with this neutral space where all views can flourish. A new religion, a new orthodoxy, this wokeness, is taking its place, and it's very aggressive, a lot and a lot less humane and reasonable than traditional Judeo-Christian ideals. Where do you think it comes from? Uh, sometimes I think it comes from beyond our borders. People try to think of the one way to fracture America is to have us turn on each other. I almost think like people are pushing our buttons. I, yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm cer- it's certainly true that all of our enemies attempt to use this kind of stuff. They look at it and they see it as a way to fracture our society. But no, I think ultimately it comes from – my theory is it comes from an elite that is, believes itself to be meritocratic alone. I have reached, you know, the corporate boardroom or the ivory tower job at the university or whatever it may be, just thanks to my own pure skill. And then they struggle to explain what they owe to the country, which older generations of elites in this country, there's nothing wrong with having elites. We've always had them. But the older generations of elites felt a sense that they were elites in order to serve the nation, in order to serve especially people below them. But if you have an elite that just thinks that it just reached its status just thanks to good test scores and it owes nothing, then it has to find some way to demonize the middle of this country. The, you know, working class people who are the backbone of this country, you have to treat them as horrible, deplorable, racist, bigoted, blah, blah, blah. And that way you – in a way you – you. Uh, assuage your own sense of the fact that you're not serving them in any way. We have a very selfish, <laughs> you know, rapacious elite for the most part, uh, in, you know, in, in, across universities, media, corporate world. And so how do they how do they assuage their guilt by saying, I don't have to serve these people. Actually, they're terrible. They're deplorable. They're racist and so on. Understood. So you, you write this book, but you also look uh, back in time. And you talk about life and death and how to view it, especially because 600,000 people died and they have relatives and they're related to other people. And suddenly they died in many cases. They weren't uh, had no idea was about to hit our shores. And you talk about Seneca, for example, who lived his life focusing on death. And you say when facing death, rather than fearing it, 
Uh, you should face death rather than fear it, and you'll have a better life. What do you mean by that? Well, Seneca was this um, uh, Roman philosopher, statesman. He was a senator uh, uh, in the first century A.D., and um, his whole belief was – I mean he did not have the benefit of revelation. That is, he was not a Christian. He was a pagan. But he had this great insight, which I think even believers can, can appreciate, which is that um, irrational fear of death, if it takes over your life, you actually don't live well. So Seneca's advice, which I – bring into this book was that you should begin each day thinking about the possibility of your own death, not in a morbid and weird way, but just that it could happen. And if it's not the coronavirus, it's the, you know, you might choke on an apple, God forbid, or whatever it might be. So if you have that perspective, you begin your day that way, as sort of strange as it sounds, then you're not, you don't allow any one source of potential danger to swell to such magnitude that you are paralyzed and can't act. So conquering that fear of death actually l lets you jump into the world and not to be a jackass or not to, to make dangerous decisions. He certainly didn't advise you to, you know, go bungee jumping with a bad rope or what have you. But it, but if you have a sense of perspective calmly, then you can face it. And especially you compare that with some of the irrational fears of the coronavirus with people like my, a lot of my neighbors, frankly, in New York City, where I live. You know, you see them after they've been vaccinated. After we know there's no outdoor transmission, they're still wearing double masks outdoor in the heat in 90 degrees. Well, you're not living, you know. That's not life. That's You've made yourself so miserable, um, and ultimately uh, it, it, you're not, you're not uh, enjoying any of the life that you're so desperately preserving. So it seems to me with this book, you want to go back and give people foundational principles since they're not getting it from maybe their country and society and their teachers. Go back in time and give people a, a foundation, some organization in this age of chaos. And you do that by looking at historical figures and historical times. Yeah, and that, that's the great thing about tradition. Tradition is ordered continuity. It's, it literally means handing down. Uh, and so um, so many of people today, especially my peers, I'm 36 years old, and people in my generation, older millennials and then younger millennials and millennials, they don't have this traditional inheritance, which means every day they have to wake up asking themselves, who am I? What am I supposed to do in life? And, and again, it's paralyzing. Whereas if you, if you have this inheritance where you know where you've come from, you also know where you're going. I'm, I'm an American. These are the ideals that inform my rights. Um, I'm a human being, and this is what the ancients have taught about not just the Bible, but also Aristotle and Plato, about what it means to be fully human, what makes you happy, objectively speaking. Certain choices don't actually make you happy. You're supposed to flourish in family. You're supposed to flourish in community. And so you, you're not every day looking into yourself solipsistically, you know, what does my gender tell me about who I am? It's exhausting. What does my, you know, what does my race tell me? Da, da, da. It's, it, it, every day, beginning that way, you don't have to reinvent the moral wheel. That's the, that's the benefit of ancient wisdom, is that it's worked for a long time for a lot of people across cultures and civilizations. Very interesting. And it's uh, the one thing about America, it gives you that you could get that sense of destiny because in many ways you're more in control of it than almost any other country. Where, you born, where you're born is not where you're going to end up. You do have choices, which I think lends to a more, uh, a, a more complete life, regardless of how it ends up, how much money you have and how big your house is, how many kids you have, you know, how many schools you went to. 
That's absolutely right. Although I will say that um, the the broad message of tradition, if I may say with a capital T, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the classical Greco-Roman tradition, um, and even some of the Eastern traditions, broadly speaking, that there is an objective account of human happiness, that we are generally better uh, as I said, in family, that we, uh, we're rational beings, so there are certain choices, for example, that our bodies are made for and certain choices that our bodies are not made for. And so um, the purpose of freedom in this account is to do what you ought to do as a human being. And I think this is, this is something that um, the more religious of, the, of our American founding fathers understood as well. You know, John Adams famously says, you know, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. So you do, you absolutely do have choice. But the older accounts of freedom would say that really your choices, your choice, you, you have choice in order to do what you really ought to do anyway, as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a wife, whatever your role in life may be, that there is an objective account of who you are, that if you do it, will make you happy. Gotcha. Uh, so, Rob Omari, uh, deep thinking for somebody in his 30s, I'll tell you, uh, uh, you're, you're wise beyond your years. Uh, go out and pick up his book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, one eight six six. Uh, let me try that again. One eight eight eight. Just for today, seven eight eight ninety nine ten. One eight 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 seven eight eight ninety nine ten. Just for today. Call. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. one uh, well, I was going to say that, but we have a new number for today. It is one eight 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 seven eight eight ninety nine ten. But I'm just thinking we should find out if we need to know more. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. So the Yankees were clinging to a 2-1 lead in the ninth when this happened. And now first and second for the catcher Murphy. Lowry's at second. Kemp is at first. Yankees trying to hold on. They lead two to one, top of the ninth inning. This could be one, two, on the first. It's a triple play. They've done it again. Three times a charm, and the Yankees win two to one. They got another triple play. You're lucky to get that every five years. They got three in one year. Amazing. You know, here's another stat for you. They're the first team to do this since the 2016 White Sox. Obviously, this ties a record and only 11th team in baseball history to pull this off in a season. Yankees four and a half games out of first. Next, let's talk golf. John Rahm was pulled off the course because he tested positive for COVID-19. He had no symptoms at all. He was about to win that that tournament, the Memorial Tournament, but then he got something even better called the U.S. Open title. I'm a big believer in karma. And after what happened a couple of weeks ago, I stayed really positive, knowing big things were coming. I didn't know what was going to be, but I knew we were coming to a special place. I know I got my breakthrough win here, and it's a very special place for my family. And the fact that my parents were able to come, I got out of COVID protocol early. I just felt like the stars were aligning. I knew my best goal was to come. And I have a hard time explaining what just happened, because I can't even believe I made the last two putts. And 
and I'm the first Spanish ever to win a U.S. Open. I just don't know how to explain it. Uh, there you go. Uh, what a great move, great moment. I think everyone was pulling for him. Uh, next, Fox News Media is teaming up with Apple Podcast subscriptions to launch a subscription-based channel, Fox News Podcast, for $2.99. The channel offers exclusive content in addition to ad-free versions of Fox News Podcast. Some people do that with other uh, services. They don't want the commercials. Yeah, it cuts down on time, and people can listen to it anytime they want. Next, Ron DeSantis, you might not want to go to Mar-a-Lago the ne- tomorrow or the next day. In a straw poll of just 371 at the Western Conservative Summit, uh, he beat Donald Trump 74% to 71%. Ted Cruz with 42%, Pompeo with 39%, Tim Scott by th- with 35%. I mean, there's other great Republican candidates that are probably going to run. I, I imagine Josh Hawley's going to run. I imagine Governor Christie's going to run. I think Marco Rubio is going to run. But what about DeSantis beating Trump? I mean, it's a very unscientific poll, though. Got to remember. I know, but it shows you DeSantis is really resonating. And uh, the one the one thing is for sure, DeSantis does not run if Trump runs. Uh, and I would love what Trump's doing now. He's going to start a tour with Bill O'Reilly. That's genius. Get 12,000 people in there, real interviews. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Help everybody uh, that had a, an opportunity to celebrate Father's Day where it's appropriate. You did and had a great weekend because uh, in the Northeast, at least we had great weather. Bottom of the hour, Brett Bear will be with us. Brett is really sick of me. Last week, I hosted The Seven, and he was, uh, of course, special report host. And each day, I would interact with him. I wouldn't just say, thanks, Brett, and we'd have interaction. But everyone's talking about what he did on Friday. We'll discuss that together shortly. And Andy McCarthy is standing in the wings. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Some of the mayors in these cities are failing miserable. Lori Lightfoot talks about what's dangerous. The cops are dangerous? No, she's dangerous. We can talk about the failed leadership, but where's the support for the men and women? This anti-police rhetoric, it is not a surprise that police officers are leaving in large numbers. Everywhere, not just here, not just in Detroit where James Craig was talking about, but around the country. The number of officers killed by gunfire, stabbed to death, or rammed by vehicles has reportedly increased 40% through the first six months of 2021. Why would anyone do this job while being vilified by Washington and maybe your local community? Is there any wonder police are leaving the force? Number two. People who then criticize me about that are actually criticizing science. Fauci misled us. First he said no masks, then he said masks. Well, let me give you a flash. That's the way science works. You work with the data you have at the time. Uh, Can you hear him get a little bit strained? The Fauci follies continue as he pretends critics don't bother him. They do and they should. Meanwhile, Biden's team lays out their willingness to pursue the true origin of the virus. I saw their plan. I am not encouraged. Number one. I think we're absolutely committed to it. And I think there's a number of others as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Last week, I heard from a lot of my colleagues saying, I just need to look at one other issue. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But 
Uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in having a bipartisan proposal. Yeah, maybe. Voting and building. That's what the Senate will be voting on starting tomorrow. Two radical bills, if passed, would radically change America. Is Joe Manchin really our only hope? No, there's more to it. I'll explain. But when we talk about law and order, even the front page of the New York Post today, maybe your front page, it is that's what everybody's talking about because it affects us all, like the pandemic. Andy McCarthy, uh, you lived your life in a, a law and order world. We're not seeing much of that in New York right now. No, Brian. And, you know, I lived my young life in the 60s and 70s in uh, the Bronx where I grew up. So I'm kind of afraid that we're going right back to, back to those bad old days. I was looking at some numbers because I knew we were going to talk this morning from the late 80s to the early 90s we had almost two we had over i should say 2000 homicides a year i think one year in fact 2200 or 2300 a year in um in new york city you know we're not there yet but the the trend line here is is very very disturbing even over you know last year everybody was whipped up at how high the numbers were over 2019 and this year the numbers are noticeably up over 2020 so, but this is a totally self-inflicted wound. We knew how to do this. We just stopped doing it. We got rid of the anti-crime unit, got rid of the homeless unit. Uh, we started telling people we're going to put the academy on hold, cut a billion dollars out of the budget. And people have similar stories. In Chicago, in Atlanta, when a subject goes to get away, let them run. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure they're going to go live a life of law and order after they run away from the cops. Who knows if they were shooting or not? So this is politicians deciding they know more about law and order and being surprised that people are now listing as their number one concern, Angie. Yeah, th- that's exactly right, Brian. And unfortunately, we don't we don't really seem to learn from history because this is really cyclical. What ends up happening is, you know, you use the right policies to tamp down on violence. And then we saw this in in terrorism as well. You know, what ends up happening is you go a certain period of time without having the same kind of uh, awful attacks that caused you to put precautions in in the first place. And then you want to convince yourself that maybe the problem wasn't so bad rather than maybe the precautionary law enforcement measures we were taking was what is making us safe. So what we're now on is the latest experiment, which is just like what happened uh, in the 1970s, where you have left-wing governments, and they want to say that the problems are, you know, the social drivers of crime and the police. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the police not only aren't the problem, there's bad cops just like there's bad everything, um, but the cops by and large are, are you know, they're they're good people. They're good for the society. Uh, and, you know, they do work that has to be done if communities are going to be protected. And the fact is the law can't do anything about the social and cultural problems that cause crime. Yep. So it's not really fair to ask legislatures or cops to, to do anything about it. Their job is to maintain the rule of law. So the cover of the New York Post today is one of the reasons we feel fortunate to have you on. Because the DA has dropped charges on hundreds of looters in the 2020 New York riots, and we had a, uh, we had two business owners who had their buildings uh, burnt out, and they offered camera footage 
to the NYPD and they were not interested. They couldn't even get a call back. But yet the story is we don't have any we don't have enough evidence to go after these people because they were wearing masks. And yet they haven't even pursued them. There was so many da- there was so much damage they decided to throw up their hands. Since when? Yeah, this is totally a problem of will and I would not blame the cops. I don't because the cops are the cops are just doing what the prosecutors tell them to do, you know, based on, I'm not saying the prosecutors give orders to the cops, but if the prosecutors aren't going to run the cases, then what's the point of arresting people? You, you actually convey a worse message then. So, um, yeah, you know, the interesting contrast, Brian, is if you look at the Capitol riot, they are scorching the earth to make those cases. 465 people have been indicted. Uh, I read a report last week that says the Justice Department anticipates another 80 to 100 people will be charged. They're going through every single Facebook photo. They're going through, uh, you know, Google location technology and all kinds of stuff. And they're going all across the country to identify people and bring them to Washington to be prosecuted. So if they look you in the eye and they tell you this is too hard to do, it's not too hard to do. It's what prosecutors do. It's what investigators do. They simply don't want to do this, and that's because the rioters in New York and the rioters on the left in general, particularly after the, the George Floyd incident a year ago, are the preferred sympathetic group as far as the political establishment is concerned. Uh, so they are getting a pass. Whereas the people who were Trump supporters who rioted at the Capitol are out of favor with the political class. So what the political class is doing is scorch the earth to make those cases. But as a matter of what a prosecutor does, it's the same job. So this is just this is just the politics of how law enforcement is in this country. And it's why the the country is so angry about a two tiered system of justice. I'm not carrying a brief for the. Capital rioters, I'm just saying we ought to treat all of this political violence the same way. So the snow bail uh, reform, if you don't know it, it's happening in New York. Hopefully it's not happening in your city, but I sense it is, listening around the country. And that is essentially if you get arrested for just about anything, and you, there you could get, you'll get out and you get a ticket. Uh, except for, I think, homicides or uh, uh, certain felonies. But you get out because they said it's a two-tiered system. If you have money, you get out. If you don't, you don't. So they decided to get rid of all bail. What's the ramification to that, Ben? The main ramification is the one you don't see, which is that what's the point of arresting people in the first place? You know, we read about all these notorious cases where people get arrested and they get out again and they commit murders or other violent crimes. And there's been plenty of that across the country. But what I worry about most, Brian, and this goes to, to your main point, I think, which is the unseen part of this is the police come to the conclusion that if they make arrests and conduct investigations, the cases aren't going to be prosecuted anyway, and they run a lot bigger risk of being like the next uh, Derek Chauvin um, if they, you know, if they intercede and do. I'm, I'm not recommending what Derek Chauvin did, but all I'm saying is that, you know, police have to use superior force in a situ in a violent situation where they're trying to quell somebody who's committing a violent attack. Yeah. And if you're the cop and, and you're on the scene and you say, you know, 
if I if I do my job and make arrests, the, the DAs are not going to prosecute the cases. And if I intervene and use superior force, I may be the one who is prosecuted. So you're going to what you end up getting is no law and order and, you know, an amazing spike in shootings and murders, which is exactly what we have. Separate note, the Supreme Court is, uh, continues to uh, offer their rulings. 9-0, uh, they ruled a unanimous decision Monday that the NCAA has illegally restricted education-based benefits that could be used as compensation to student-athletes. The decision upholds the lower court ruling that generally maintain the NCAA rules of general forbidding payment to student-athletes while their education-related aid uh, to the extent the NCAA means to propose a sort of judicial judiciary-ordained immunity from the terms of the Sherman Act for its restraint of trade that we should overlook at a restriction because they happen to fall as the intersection of higher education, sports, and money. Uh, we cannot agree, Justice Gorsuch wrote in his uh, court's opinion. Uh, put down, there's a, there's a lot of restrictions on how much money these uh, players can be, can be making on the side when they're playing. What changes? Uh, mainly benefits like, uh, you know, scholarships to graduate school and other things that, uh, you know, in-kind kind of benefits that, uh, that athletes uh, are being denied by uh, the NCAA. But, I, you know, I'd say about this, Brian, and we all – we're going to need some time to study the opinion, obviously. But it was a really dumb appeal by the NCAA because they won on the important stuff in the lower courts. And what they really wanted was for the courts to say they had complete immunity from the antitrust laws, which, you know, frankly, was in this political climate. Forget about the law in this climate. That that was not going to happen. They were playing with fire. They didn't have to bring this appeal. And I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, talking about the political climate, there's a long look being taken at the big tech companies under antitrust law. So. The way the Supreme Court is interpreting it, interpreting it and the importance they're giving to the fact that the NCAA had monopoly control over these athletes, um, you know, I don't think that bodes well for the big tech companies. Very good point. I, I guess I never thought that that would, but politics would enter into these opinions to the, to the way it is, but I guess it does. I also think on some level, Andy, I don't know if you're going to agree with me, but do you think they know that the Democrats are looking to see how this court's performing so they could get some momentum behind fattening and packing the court? And if they say everything's a 4-3 decision with all those Bush and Trump appointees, we have to do something. It's an emergency like they're doing with H.R. 1. That might be playing into this. Yeah, well, you're, uh, I, I'm kind of like you in that regard. I don't believe in coincidences. And, you know, the... the uh, the best way that the court can show that it's not a, a politicized institution is to issue a bunch of opinions where they seem like they're collegial yep. and they're cutting across uh, ideological lines. I'm not a fan of that because I think if you try, you know, the court's main job is to come out right on the law. And if you try to narrow your opinion so that you can get them, you know, tiny enough that you can get seven or nine judges to agree, it's one thing to look like you're, you know, a great collegial legal institution that doesn't do politics. But in the meantime, you know, like these outfits like, uh, you know, this Baker in Colorado and the Little Sisters of the Poor, 
they end up being in these litigations for 11, 12, 13 years because the court won't decide the main issue that has to be decided. So there's a real price to be paid for deciding the cases narrowly just so you can get big, um, you know, lopsided majorities that look like they're nonpartisan. Andy McCarthy, thanks so much. Pick up ball of collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. And that was 2016. I can't wait to the uh, one in 2020, you write. <laughs> no, no more. No more. <laughs> thanks, Andy. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think we should get beyond race. I know I'm spitting in the wind when I say that. I know no one wants to hear it. I think the right story here is that it's the American story. We're all in this thing together. I know that's very easy to say. I think Martin Luther King got it right in 1963. I think that the racialization of this discussion of crime and violence and policing, of poverty and wealth and whatnot, is bad for America. I think talk about reparations, whatever the moral argument might be, is disastrous for the future of this country. Black people should not be trying to cut a separate deal with America. Let's make the country a good country for everybody, and we'll be on the right track. Uh, Professor Glenn Lowry, you've heard him on the show before. I've interviewed him at the 7 p.m., and I think I interviewed him on Fox and Friends. He's a Brown University professor, self-made success story, came up in inner-city Chicago, uh, was selling furniture for a while, went back to school, had all types of success with his intellect, uh, and then he ends up where he is now. And speaking out on race in his podcast, wildly successful. Doesn't like to do a lot of media. We'll try to get him on here. But it was a con- I, I enjoyed that conversation. George Stephanopoulos did a great job yesterday asking simple questions and letting the debate go on between he and another a more liberal professor. But they were having a conversation, one you would enjoy participating in. She is off because when people talk about critical race, we're not talking about not talking about racism. She kept saying we can't whitewash our past to pretend it didn't happen. No one's asking that. Um, so on Meet the Press, they had the same conversation, different people. Here's a look at uh, all sides. Cut 26. To this idea of critical race theory, I have to tell you, I just spent some time reporting on this county in Virginia about an hour outside of Washington. And, and to your point, this is something that is mobilizing people and yes. resonating very deeply. This is a parent-led backlash at the grassroots level. It's, and it's manufactured. No, it's, and the it's fi- completely... And then, it, and then sort of the elected seems to have been lit. The fire up. was lit. I disagree. Yeah. I think it started because p- parents have had it with the education bureaucracy after COVID. Mm-hmm. They're fed up with it. They tend to trust Democrats when it comes to education funding, but they trust Republicans on education accountability. I think that what the backlash you're seeing on critical race theory in schools is another example of parents trying to hold educators accountable. You see Chuck Todd interrupt to put his opinion in as a host? Tim Russert would have said it like this. Some would think that it's a, a driven. What makes you think it's not? Rather than, oh, but this is manufactured. For, no, excuse me. You're letting your point of view get involved here. Critical race theory vilifies white people, wants them to apologize. They have exercises to do it as young as third and fourth grade, maybe even first grade. They got books to go to go to enhance this. So this is not 
Let's learn about slavery. Let's learn about the, the first slave ship that came here, Amistad, with John Adams. Uh, son John Quincy Adams who represent a slave ship as they try to get full citizenship. All these stories that have been woven in, uh, born a slave, the, the story of uh, Booker T. Washington, up from slavery, I should say. That's the way it is. Frederick Douglass's book. No one whitewashes history. But you don't condemn people today for what happened 200 years ago. You make the country better. Let's do it. But if you're going to vilify people, forget it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fox News Primetime, hosted by Brian Kilmeade. It starts in a few seconds, but I think Brian wants to do the headline game. Well, Headline I'm, for tomorrow. Right. So I'm not invited on your panel, but I'll be the audible. I'll be the alternate. So I'm in. This was just handed to me for tomorrow, my Nostradamus pick. Ratings are in. Primetime gets more viewers than special report, causing tension between the long-term, long-time friends. Fox News Primetime, hosted by Brian Kilmeade, and I'm taking his time, starts right now. Right, and I just got I have my headline, and being that Trey Gowdy was so short, I'll take some of his time. You know, Fox News Primetime, hosted by Brian Kilmeade, starts right now. Brian, I just want to show you that I can walk on this show. I can walk. I can walk. I can walk. And sometimes I wear khakis, and sometimes I wear sneakers. But right? I can walk. You and I you just want to show and you Brett, that. This, and this really hurts because I'm in a different studio today and I can't. Uh, and that that is some of the interplay where Brett Bear ate into my time with his uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brett. Uh, for people that don't understand, we you actually posted this video online. We got to see your legs for the first time since 2019. <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, I wanted to make sure that you knew that we had the mobile ability <laughs> in, in the D.C. studio. Well, I didn't see so you're back in D.C. Yeah, back in D.C., up on Capitol Hill. Soon panels in person, things going to get back to normal. It was fun going back and forth like that, Brett. People were like said that they could not believe that you got stood up and walked around and showed your legs. I must have really struck a nerve. <laughs> I think so. So, I think, I mean, you know, I was wearing the khakis and the sneakers. I mean, yeah, I just wanted to prove that uh, that I could do it. All right. So, listen, you, you're in Washington, so let's go inside Washington. Two bills are going to come up uh, for votes this week, we think. Uh, infrastructure, perhaps, and definitely H.R. 1. First on H.R. 1, as currently constructed, you need 60 votes. This thing is not going to work, right? No. Mm-mm. They don't have the numbers. And so... Unless um, Joe Manchin and others decide that they're going to kill the filibuster or change the rules, um, which they've said they're not going to do, I, I don't. There's just not the numbers there. So here is um, here here is what uh, Laura Baron Lopez said of Politico yesterday on uh, about Stacey Abrams. Because what happened is, to everyone to back up, yesterday, or excuse me, on Thursday, I think it was Joe Manchin put out a memo saying H.R. 1 does not work. But here are some of the things I want in H.R. 1 for me to consider it. Stacey Abrams, of all people, looked at it and says, sounds good. Meanwhile, almost everything in there is something she rejected as Jim Crow 2.0 when it came from the governor of uh, Georgia. Cut 11. She did give them a bit of an excuse to say, oh, well, now this very uh, progressive um, 
this progressive leader in Georgia supports it, so now we don't have to. But McConnell was always going to rally his Republican uh, conference against Manchin's proposal. So barring a change of heart from 10 Republicans, barring Manchin changing his heart about the filibuster, this bill is going to fail, and it really has no future right now in the Senate. And they talk about gerrymandering and taking that power away from the states and put it into a computer model. They talk about voter ID. Manchin needs it. H.R. Uh, 1 wouldn't require it. Um, and he goes through other some of these items. What do you think the purpose of all this is, knowing that H.R. 1, without the fil- with the filibuster there, wouldn't work? Well, I mean, it's it's just uh, as far as an issue, Democrats think it's an issue that they they can win on. The problem is, is that they're going back and forth and Stacey Abrams agreeing to something that she, um, you know, campaigned against and, and kind of told the Major League Baseball to get out of Atlanta, basically, um, you know, and they left. And so it created this whole firestorm over this bill that uh, there's a lot of elements that uh, would be in this negotiated uh, bill. The bottom line is that uh, the overall picture about who does elections is in the Constitution left up to the states. And uh, if you're going to do a federalized bill uh, from the top, uh, it's going to, one, be challenged, and two, have to really pass uh, with 60 votes unless you're going to blow up the filibuster. So what do you think the reality is of Joe Manchin on the on the phone in a conference call with no labels? It's a pack. And he said, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in some of these reforms. And one of the reforms we think he was referring to is instead of a 60 vote threshold, make it 55. Yeah, I mean, I think he's tossing all kinds of things against the wall to try to stop the incoming uh, from the progressive left. But I do think that uh, there's not a movement yet to to break this down, and Manchin is not the only one who doesn't want to see the 60 vote threshold uh, taken taken down. There are other Democrats who believe that that's in part how the Senate operates, and if they lose the majority, they're going to be the minority, uh, and you have to get the 60 votes. Uh, it goes the other way, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brett, the other thing is infrastructure. On a combination bill, bipartisan bill, you have 11 Republicans, roughly, that framed out a compromise bill that would be about a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending. Uh, new spending is about 500-plus billion dollars, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of repurpose pandemic spending. The word is they'll pass this, perhaps— and then they'll come back and just do 4.5 or 4.6 trillion on reconciliation. What are you hearing about this? I think that's the plan. I think um, the White House wants to have some kind of bipartisan buy-in um, on some of it, and then wants to get what they want to get uh, in their own way. So um, Manchin and others have told them that they need Republicans on the first part. Uh, but they haven't said no to reconciliation pushing through the big one after that. So I think that that is the plan that Chuck Schumer is going after. So right now uh, we understand that Manchin, Jerome, uh, uh, Janine Shaheen, John Tester, or three in cinema have said, I'm not really happy with this huge infrastructure bill, but they're happy with the compromise bill. Here's what uh, Lindsey Graham said, cut four. I think the difference between this negotiation and the earlier negotiation is that we're willing to add more new money to infrastructure. 
uh, in this package. And uh, I am hopeful if the White House and Joe Biden stay involved, we can get there. I would just say this. President Biden, if you want an infrastructure deal of a trillion dollars, it's there for the taking. You just need to get involved and lead. Would they not take it if they knew another uh, multi-trillion dollar package was coming up the rear to do all the social spending? Well, I think that that's the biggest question, and uh, I, I think that they must have buy-in if this is the track of going down. Um, you know, there are some progressives who say we shouldn't even bother with this other, um, you know, liberals who say we shouldn't bother with this first negotiation. It's a waste of time and just do it all in one giant package. Uh, but they don't have the votes for that, so they've got to do it this way. I don't know if the second part is going to come together. I mean, I, I think there there might be fall off uh, on those votes, and you know, you still got to get fifty one. Uh, lastly, uh, let's talk about the Iranian deal. They have a new uh, president, and he's as radical as the day is long. And now there's a rush. The Biden administration looks as this is a rush to get to reinvigorate the 2015 deal. And get that passed before and then renegotiate a tougher one after this is passed. Here's Jake Sullivan, Cut 39. We vigorously object to the worldview and the outlook that Raisi has put forward. We don't share his values. We don't share his interests. But, Chris, we also have to keep our eye on the ball. The person who will call the shots on Iran's nuclear program is not Raisi. It's the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, which you heard earlier from Lindsey Graham. He's the guy, ultimately, who will make the decision about whether Iran uh, accepts the constraints on its nuclear program that will ensure that it does not get a nuclear weapon. That's what we are testing right now. That's what our diplomacy is all about. And we are determined to prevent Iran from ever acquiring a nuclear weapon. I just don't understand why they think this outdated deal with even with now nine years left where less years left, is the right way to go now. Rush it through when it wasn't, they were actually using that money to reinvigorate their terror opportunities. Yeah, I, I, this has always been the, the wish of the Obama administration. It was uh, now the wish of the Biden administration. And I think, um, you know, we've never taken into account how many bad things Iran has contributed to in the region. Uh, and the other players in the region do know that, and that's why it was so interesting when uh, the Gulf states' option to peace and these deals individually with Israel uh, were changing the dynamic because all of those partners, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, uh, understand what right. Iran was up to. And there was a problem in their nuclear facility. I saw it today. They was undisclosed problem with the nuclear facility inside Iran. Uh, somehow Israel's gotten access to the most sensitive equipment in the most sensitive areas, and they're not going to stand by, even with Nafali, Naftali uh, Bennett, their new prime minister in charge, it doesn't seem. Brett, uh, no. there was— and One thing that they, no matter where the po- politics are, uh, as far as Israel goes, they're uh, united 100 percent with protecting Israel and, and its sovereignty. So expect more of those undisclosed— uh, problems in Iran's nuclear facility. So I did break some news on the radio show, which I relate to. I didn't think he, I didn't think you know I was being serious or not. Joe Theismann came on this show and talked about the celebrity golf uh, tournament that you're in, and he's in, and he said this about you. You know, one of our guys, Brett Bear, is. Uh, I, I'm I'm thinking he has a shot at it this year. I mean, there's some great golfers out there. Mark Mulder, Smoltz—he's played on John Smoltz played on the. Champions Tour. Uh, Marty Fish won it last year. Marty's always in the top, but 
I wouldn't count Brett out. I mean, he, I, first time he came out there, I really didn't know he could play. Then I watched him play, and I went, wow, this man's got a game. You know, I, Joe, I just don't want you so intimidated by Brett that you don't play, right? I don't want you to be no, like, if I can't I'm, beat Brett, I don't want to play. I'm flying out with him, so I'm going to see if I can, you know, maybe step on a toe or a finger <laughs> or something, slow, <laughs> slow him down a little bit. So, I mean, is Theismann's really good at these predictions? He always does his research and his homework. I mean, do you feel as though you can win this thing? I think I could. My game's pretty good. Um, I've been practicing a lot. And, uh, yeah, there's some great golfers out there, and you got to get on a streak. you got to make a lot of birdies. But, um, you know, I was closing in and kind of fell apart. Uh, last year, I think I got seventh the year before. I'm in. I'm in the hunt. I just want to be, uh, you know, top tier. So NBC has to put my name on the uh, <laughs> on the yeah. scoreboard the entire weekend. It's the American Century Championship. It's it's coming up. Um, it starts July sixth, right? Yes, we fly out the sixth, but it, the tournament's actually the ninth, uh, tenth, eleventh. Now, is Romo still great? Romo's very good. Um, you know, Steph Curry is really good. He's had a run. Marty Fish, you know, tennis player. He won last year. He's a great player. He's not playing tennis. He's playing golf now. And um, and Theismann's right. Smoltz is uh, great. A uh, couple other guys, Mark Mulder. These pitchers, they've got a, they've got good golf games. Hey, Brett, if something does happen to you and Fox had to go into the depth chart to get a golfer to replace you, who would be the second best golfer at Fox? That's a great question. That is a great question. I think Bill Hemmer probably could step up a little bit. Uh, Britt plays a lot. Britt Hume. Um, I haven't. I haven't gone down the the depth chart though. All right. Uh, you, you, I mean, how's your game, Brian? It is terrible. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, it's it's something that um, I'm actually taking a few lessons. I went out on the golf nice. course first time in a long time, and I'm I'm looking to see if I could add that to my repertoire. There you go. You'll you're an athlete. You'll you'll make leaps and bounds early. We'll see. I should have started earlier. Hey, Brett. Uh, good luck if I don't talk to you before the tournament starts. All right, man. I'll probably we'll get you it. next week. Thanks a lot. One eight six six. I can't even give that number out. We have a new number. One eight 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 seven eight eight ninety nine ten. Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Will you allow the American government to have CIA here in Pakistan uh, to conduct cross-border counterterrorism missions against al-Qaeda, ISIS, or the Taliban? Absolutely not. There's no way we're going to allow any bases... uh, any sort of action from Pakistani territory uh, into Afghanistan. Absolutely not. So that's the president of Afghanistan, Imran Khan, talking to Jonathan Swan of Axios on HBO, saying that if you want to relocate your intelligence assets to Pakistan or continuing to, not going to happen. So if we don't have a relationship with Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, all the stands, because fundamentally, even though they're separate from the Russian satellites, they're not separate. They'll have to get Russian permission. Then we got to ask Russian permission to be able to base from there. Are you kidding me? So has anyone pre-thought our exit from Afghanistan? Anybody? Let alone the thousands that have helped us. They're basically saying the Taliban's going to take the country. What a colossal kick in the gut this is. The way we're leaving is so 
ass backwards. It's such an embarrassment and not worthy of all the great men and women who fought there and served there and lost their lives there and their livelihoods there and maybe some limbs. So Jake Sullivan's asked, do you notice that there's a lot of people that helped us that are going to be killed now if the Taliban takes over? Cut 37. What steps is the administration taking to protect those workers? Will they be evacuated? Well, first, George, this is a paramount priority for President Biden and for the entire team. We are processing these applications and getting people out at a record pace. We are working with Congress right now, including the two representatives you just mentioned, to actually streamline some of the requirements that slow this process down. And we are doing uh, the kind of extensive planning uh, for potential evacuation should that become necessary. We will take all of these steps to ensure that we do right by the people who did right by us. Right. Uh, you take it way too long. There's a degree of panic at CENTCOM. I know that for a fact. General Jack Keenan and I talked about it on Fox and Friends on Friday, and he said, you're going so slow. Why don't we pick a third country? Because you're talking about thousands of people. And at which time in a third country, in a di- different area, we can go through the applications in a more coherent way so we don't make any mistakes and get a terrorist mixed in there. But the way they're willing to admit that they're turning the country over to the Taliban is unthinkable. Why they couldn't just leave 2,500 people there to keep a spear of influence in the area, allow the Afghan government to continue for a little while longer, put them on a slow course of we gradually get out. And here's why. We benefit from being there. We see ISIS manifest. We see who the lieutenants are. We see the captains as they emerge. Terror captains, not ours uh, as we would we'd like to think of it. We see what the Taliban's doing. We watch al-Qaeda manifest itself. We left one time entirely before, and then our towers fell 20 years ago. We're coming up on this. And now we want to declare victory and leave. You could leave, but don't declare victory. You could say the war is over. Well, no, you could. we could lose the war. We could uh, decide we're not going to fight over there on a daily basis. But China comes in. They work out a deal for rare earth. They provide their own security, and they get out with the rare earth. The Russians say, good luck getting out of there. Right. With the tongue firmly in cheek after the way they left in humiliation. And they left no longer the Soviet Union. And they're going to play it like we lost. It just is an unnecessary kick to the gut. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to um, make sure to watch Fox & Friends tomorrow between 6 and 9 and come back here every single day on the Brian Kilmeade Show, especially if you have to run. And if you want to go pre-order a book that I think you'll really love, President the Freedom Fighter, uh, go do it now. Get that on Amazon or anywhere else. So you can go to my website and get it signed, briankillmead.com. Don't move. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.